Oh, welcome and thank you everyone for coming out tonight. Uh, we're very glad you're here for tonight's reading uh, with Passenger Editors and Poets. Um, upcoming poetry programs in the Pratt Library include our poems by heart. There are flyers on the um, back table there. And a reading by Joseph Ross and Piotr Guiadza on August 7th. For tonight's passenger reading, we're very grateful to editors Mary Azriel and Kendra Kopalki for putting together this wonderful program. And we're also grateful to all the writers who will be sharing your work with us here. Now please stay after to shop at the Passenger Journal and a Books table in the back, and also to greet one another and make new friends and enjoy refreshments. Passenger Journal uh, for Writers Over 50 was started about, I think, 20, 21 or 23 years ago by Mary Azriel and Kendra Kopelke. And um, there's a little bit about the editors. Uh, Kendra Kopelke, co-editor of Passenger Journal and Passenger Books, um, is author of Hopper's Women and director of the Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing and Publishing Arts at the University of Baltimore. Mary Azrael is the author of Victorians and Riddles for a Naked Sailor and also an opera libretto and teaches poetry writing, inspiration, and craft in the Odyssey program at Hopkins University. Passenger um, grew to include Passenger Books in 2005 and has newly added an online branch, Open Book. And you'll have to take a look at their website. As the editors describe the creation of Passenger, this is from the Passenger website that I'm quoting, the idea was to bring attention to older writers, to encourage the imagination throughout our lives, and to create a publication so beautiful and welcoming that people would want to read it and be published in it. And I think they have definitely succeeded in doing that. Editors Mary Azriel and Kendra Kopalke and the writers who have contributed over the years have created exquisite, sensitive, and dynamic works of art, literary art, to inspire the rest of us. And please welcome Kendra Kopalke and Mary Azriel, and they will introduce the program. Thank you. Thank you um, to Kim and Kathleen for having us here. It's a wonder wonderful to be here in this library. Um, we came last year, I guess, and our the audience this time is even bigger, which makes me and Mary, I know, so happy. I, um, we had our 21st anniversary conference two years ago for Passenger. So Passenger was 21 years old old enough to drink. It was on its 50th issue, so it was old enough to be published in itself. And we had people come from all over the country that we had published over the last 20 years. And it was a wonderful, wonderful celebration. And I got this image that we, if we bought a bus, we called, the, um, we called it the Burning Bright uh, Conference. It was called Burning Bright Passenger Celebrates 21 Years. We had a bus. We had a bus. We could put everybody on it. And we'd have flames. This was back when Sarah Palin had her bus. 
And I was kind of thinking of a makeover, a makeover of Sarah Palin's old bus, so we could get that bus, because I'm sure that's not being used right now, and we could um, put everybody on our bus, and we could just ride around giving these kind of readings, you know, and then every time we went to a new town, we'd collect more people for the bus. People would be on the Burning Bright bus, and before we know it, this voice, which I can hear in my mind of writer, these older, older, older voices as we get older and our creativity really gets sharper and sharper and sharper. It's that big yelp. It's that sort of yelp that we're kind of after. So tonight is a real example of the collective voice, you know, the collective voice of Passenger. We've got people here from D.C. and Burtonsville and York, Pennsylvania. Um, This is not just a Baltimore crowd. And that's really thrilling for us to see the kind of the distance people are traveling to come here tonight, as well as um, just the the enthusiasm everyone showed when we invited them. So thank you all so much. And actually, this is probably one of the first times that no one in my family's here, so it's kind of nice. <laughs> um, you know, when you first start out, you know, when Passenger had its first issue 21 years ago, your whole family's got to be there, right? Because you got to fill up the room. And it's kind of nice when, no, you know, you can look out and you think, whoa, I don't see anyone in my family. That's kind of cool. <laughs> it's an achievement. So um, I want to introduce, um, before we start, and then I'll tell you about the way we're going to do things tonight, I want to introduce, well, Mary can stand up for a minute because she's, if you don't know Mary, this is Mary Israel. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, and if you don't know Panta Tofanji, that's the Panta, will you stand up? <laughs> Panta is the reason that um, Passager is so beautiful, because she herself is a poet, but she also cares so much about the book as an object of art. So um, I think this her latest book by um, Moira Egan, Hot Flash Sonnets, which we're celebrating tonight, is an example of a book that once you touch it, you just think, whoa, I didn't know a book could feel so good. And that's Panto's work. So um, always thank you for everything that you do. Uh, Okay, so tonight we're going to, this is the way we're going to have our reading. Um, We're featuring Moira Egan because we just came out with her new book, Hot Flash Sonnets. And... um, Very cool. It's really cool. Um, uh, Moira, we published one of these sonnets in the last issue of Passenger, and we heard Moira read them, and we were so thrilled. We said, could we do the book? And she said, sure. And within a very short time, we did this book. And then Moira has come back from uh, Rome to be here this month and uh, celebrate this book. So we're just honored and thrilled to have her here tonight. And I hope that you'll all um, take a look at this book, because it's absolutely stunning just stunning. To introduce um, Moira, we have Clorinda Harris. Um, Many of you know Clorinda Harris. She's a much-loved poet and teacher and editor and um, supporter of the arts and poetry in Baltimore. I know that I've spent my life reading her work and her um, pieces in the Baltimore Sun about reading poetry, and I have always really appreciated her um, continuous creative spark as well as her intelligence. The way she speaks about other poets has always meant a good deal to me. So um, I'm really thrilled that she's come here tonight to introduce Moira. So thank you, Clorinda. Do you want to come on up? And then after... 
Yeah, I, I got a little ahead of myself. I'm so sorry. Should I go sit down? No, stay. Oh, okay. Stay. Okay. It, was a, it was a trip you made, and it was a nice trip. Um, so then I'll step up again after Moira reads. Okay. Okay, okay. okay. thank you. Thank you so much, Kendra. I am also happy to say that in one issue of one of the volumes of the Divas series, I was very fortunate to be one of the uh, poets that was in that particular book, which was called When Divas Dance. Is that what we, yeah, When Divas Dance, and uh, Kendra uh, was one of the divas, as was I. And I, I have to tell you that we were bidden to have get dresses for the occasion. Do you still have yours, Kendra? Your diva dress. I, I feel very, very thrilled and very honored to be able to introduce Moira's uh, hot flash sonnets, which are just wonderful and are back there. Um, I'm going to pretty much read this so I don't babble, okay? I, I, I think I need to script my spontaneity for this occasion. I once had a hot flash. Just one. It occurred at a dinner party where I was the hostess. I shall never forget my guest's gate-mouthed horror as my skin, hair, and clothing suddenly dripped as if I were sitting under an invisible individual shower. So I always counted myself lucky to have gone through only surgical menopause, i.e. hysterectomy. And don't we, don't we love the language of women and medicine, hysteris, hysterical? Well, anyway, I digress. Um, so I, I, I thought I was lucky not to have quite had more than that one terrible hot flash. But if the real thing brings on bursts of creativity as molten hot as Moira Egan's latest book, Hot Flash Sonnets, I deeply regret having missed out on it. The thing is, Moira Egan's creative genius, her extraordinary imagination, musicality, language artistry, exquisite craftsmanship, that's no flash. It's been hers all her adult life and even before because I happen to know, have known Moira ever since she was a brilliant six-year-old. Moira's latest book is much more than a collection of poems clustered around the theme of the change. The book is, as a single entity, is as carefully and cannily wrought as any of the sonnets therein. The contents move in waves like the one the speaker experiences. Insomnia... There are four different insomnia poems, and they, uh, along with mood swing, four mood swing poems, flash the book into four sections. Um, and, and within each section, the, the, the tone flashes from comic to tragic and back, sometimes within the same poem. The book flashes with wit and humor. For example, Mora borrows th uh, the title of one of the sonnets from the time-honored language of jokes, Two Middle-Aged Women Walk Into a Bar, using what sounds like, at first, it sounds like an oft-heard uh, one-liner. The future ain't what it used to be. Think about that for a while. Moira flashes with that one. For me, she flashes a picture of me doing a double-take. They're, they're poems that resonate again and again and again in a variety of ways. Multiple languages inform Moira Egan's hot flash sonnets, ranging from the scientific and metaphysical through boisterous Baltimoreese, wry or solemn voices of women friends, of comforters, and short bursts of Italian, because as you know, and as Kendra just pointed out, Moira uh, and her husband Damiano Abani, uh, Abani live in Rome and uh, are probably the best 
uh, today's best translators of uh, poetry between Italian and English, and uh, very, very well known for that. Moira knows her classics and her pop culture well enough to speak their languages. So informed and judicious is her language that if there were a typo in the text, I'm not saying that there is, I'm just saying if there were, and if the word was so obvious what it was supposed to be in context, I would still run to the dictionary thinking it was a word that only Mora and maybe half a dozen other lexicographers had ever heard of. I trust her language, and it always shocks me, and I trust it to surprise me. I, I... I apologize for this kind of long introduction because all I really needed to say was here is Moira, let's celebrate the birth of her latest book, Hot Flash Sonnets and All Its Beauty. But I think Moira will understand I have been waiting for this exact moment for over 50 years. So, Moira. Show and tell. Gosh, thank you. And you know, it's a sure sign that my jet lag is gone because I'm crying. (laughs) Jet lag keeps me from being emotional because I can only do a couple things at the same time. Like when I have jet lag, I can stand and I can read. Um, Now I can stand and cry. Thank you. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction, Clorinda. And again, I've already said this in public, but I'm going to keep saying it in public to Kendra and Mary and Panta and Sarah Lynn, who I guess is not here. Um, I I don't know about the sonnets in here because I wrote them, but this book is just such a gorgeous artifact, so much so that it was really funny. One of the kind people who wrote something on the back, Annie Finch, picked it up and said, oh my God, this is the most beautiful book I've ever seen. I I mean, the most beautiful paperback book I've ever seen because mine is pretty nice too. She pointed to her hardcover latest but it's really true um, that it is a, a gorgeous object. And in case things get crazy, the, the other one's hanging from my mirror. So I'm just going to read a few because I know we have many wonderful readers and everyone wants to hear all of them. But I just thought I'd do a little round robin of thanks and appreciation. And I hope you didn't find a typo. I know that, Okay. The first, the first book in, yeah, because we certainly went back and forth a lot, didn't we? I think Kendra and Mary loved me less after my, <laughs> I have to make a change, I made a boo-boo. Thank you. Um, this is an introduction to the whole um, thought process of what is going on with my body and why can't someone help me? And it's called What the Flesh is Heir to. Is the mic Okay. Our mothers never told us there'd be days and weeks and months and years like this. You think they took a vow of silence? Oh, by the way, please feel free to laugh if something strikes you as funny. It was probably meant to be. If not, if someone died, then don't. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, I'll start again. Our mothers never told us there'd be days and weeks and months and years like this. You think they took a vow of silence? Anyway, I think somebody needs to make a kit like the one they gave out in sixth grade, the pads and belts, something happens to girls. It's normal, said the booklet, don't be afraid. I need a book like that with homey pearls of woman wisdom for this later stage. Dear Kimberly Clark, we have some suggestions. We need Kleenex, light days, and also sage advice about the menopausal question, to HRT or not. 
Soy, calcium? And could you please throw in some halcyon? Um, and in honor of various lovely people who have published some of these poems along the way, um, that's going to kind of guide what I read tonight. And this will be the first time that I read the first mood swing sonnet. I've always been an emotional person. That's a nice way to put it. I've always been a moody bitch when I wasn't being a happy, joyous thing. And then suddenly it got worse. And I was married to this very nice man who began to think, oh God, she's lost her mind. Well, and then after the insomnia, then I I looked up some symptoms and mood swings are part of the package. And I thought, but sonnets, mood swings are perfect to be enclosed in the container of a sonnet. And so there, thus there are four of these. Um, and this one was the first of the hot flash sonnets to be published anywhere, and it was published in the Suwannee Theological Review. And I would like to thank Greg for little did he know what he was getting into. And this has a little bit of Italian in it. It also has chemical words in it, which I had to look up. Peroxetine and triazolam, it'll be obvious what they are. But, but the Italian... After the weirdly placed volta, e poi all'improvviso la tempesta means, and then all of a sudden, the storm. So, this is mood swing number one. They warn us here to keep the windows closed against the summer storms, but what's the need to fear this azure sky, bright, hyaline, of every cloudy blemish innocent? Empyrean ideal as if from Plato, this vault majestic is so damned serene, just looking up works like paroxetine or triazolam. E poi, al improvviso la tempesta, the sky goes cobalt black, a jagged bolt zags over the horizon, and half a second later, thunder cracks, the wind whips, blows the bolted windows open. The rain deluges down in ropes as thick as fists, and in ten minutes calm again. So actually, that sounds a little bit like the weather here lately, too, doesn't it? This has been terrifying. This has been the weirdest spring everywhere. It's been like cold and rainy, and Damiana was eating polenta and wearing a sweater last week. That's not normal for June. Is anyone from the Baltimore Review here by any chance? No. Well, I want to thank Baltimore, my wonderful hometown, and which I do miss, because people are nicer here than they are in Rome. And even though they speak a weird language here, I understand them. Romans, they don't speak Italian. Well, anyway, um, last summer, the the Baltimore Review's themed literary contest was, guess what? Heat. And so I thought, oh, how perfect. I'll send some hot flash sonnets. And they kindly chose them um, as second place in the thing. So I'll read the two that came from there, and then I'll pretty much close up with an Arnica poem, because we'll need Arnica after this ride, right? And this was the first hot flash sonnet. It's fun to look back at the, oh my God, it's, it was so simple then. It was like, you know, Clorinda, you know, whoa. And then, do you have a fever? So, hot flash. As if you'd spent all Roman afternoon inside the cool embrace of marble walls of some palazzo, and then all too soon, it's time to leave. They're closing hall by hall. So you step out onto the August street, the white sun blaring down. Sorry. Asphalt echoes of sticky, stinky, visible waves of heat. Sweat pours from you, but has nowhere to go. 
or like that dish of mutton vindaloo. Remember how the waiter shook his head, anticipatory sympathy for you, misguided Anglo girl, then how it spread, internal spice combustion, your blood no longer blood at all, but habanero. You know, I almost, so I'll do, the, this is the other heat one, um, and it, it, it brings up a point about which I have a genuine question, which I ask in the poem. Um, sisters in Sweat. If even Mr. Limbaugh knows it's true that women living in propinquity will soon begin to cycle with the moon in unison, ah, benison of female tendencies toward cooperation, imagine our foremothers in their caves, Cro-Magnon crouching round each parturition, all sisters, cousins, aunts caring for the babes. Then how come no one's yet released the study that shows that flashes too are a contagion? We're sisters in the sweat, hormonal buddies. We swoon and flush, we peel our layers in legion. We dress in gauze and veils, we're Salome's of menopause. Rush, look out for the waves. You know, can I be two more? Do I have time? Just to... Because I also, because Greg Williamson is here, who's was one of my sonnet heroes, um, and I wrote this really weird, and I think some of us... Wait, what was I saying? Some of us have experienced the joy of forgetting what we were saying in the middle of a sentence. Um, And it's just such a wonderful thing, because as Linda at Bellagio said, I used to be able to have a conversation and not make a fool of myself. What was I talking about? But anyway, uh, inspired by the model of Greg Williamson and his invented forms, you can see this more or less from here. This is, a, this is what Damiano dubbed this form sonnet with a sidecar. And I was sitting there in the air-conditioned room at Bellagio, a, bless, a blessed month, thinking, I just made up a form. I'm going to write a poem in which each line is like a clue for something easily forgettable. And its answer, and it's a Shakespearean sonnet, by the way. I forgot to say that. And its answer rhymes in a Shakespearean fashion, too. So I'll, like, move my head. It, it will be obvious. And, I, of course, I use a lot of slant rhyme, but it's forgetfulness sonnet for Linda. Um, what was your last name again? Where have you gone, goddess of memory? Namazani. I find no laughter in this new forgetting. Kundera. Can't fathom this is how it's supposed to be. Ontology. My list of tongue, my list of tongue tip losses is increasing. Anaphora, zip zaps neurotransmit across two nerves. Synapse, the apple flavored smoke of Istanbul. Hookah, that altar holding domed part of the church. Apps, don't take his name in vain in Donegal. Puka, the pretty actress sister of Jackie O. Radziwill, that wine producing town in Western Cape. Parl. The leaves' autumnal colors, brown and yellow, xanthophyll. Miss Bishop's birthday stuff of, stuff of lime and clay, marl. Bald Mountain loosed my brother from his wits, fantasia. I'm speechless. I know there's a word for it, aphasia. <laughs> so I finished writing that, and, you know, Damiano's like, are you losing? Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I, I said, this is the most fun I've ever had writing a poem. And um, 
thanks again to uh, this. Having turned 50 last year, there are so many advantages to turning 50. But the main one is being able to to have a poem in Passager. <laughs> Other than that, a lot of it really sucks. But anyway, <laughs> here I am. And it's all right. And people think I'm blonde, not gray, so that's good. So the couple, the, just a couple of things very small that I need to explain about this one, which was the one that appeared in Passager in that beautiful issue back there with Ponta's. I forget what kind of print it, I forget what kind of print it is, but her beautiful print on the cover um, is, everyone knows what Arnica is, the stuff you put on when you hurt yourself. The Italian sentence, per sofrenza si vince gran vittoria, means through suffering you win the great victory. And last but not least, Adanyarasana, for those of you who aren't yogis or yoginis, is a backbend, which on a good day I can do. So, Arnica, the week before the 50th birthday. Oh, Laura, Beatrice, count your blessings. Morbidity, mortality are messing with my good sense, and now it's way too late to die young and stay pretty. So he takes my hand. Be patient. Where's the arnica? Per sofrenza si vince gran vittoria. As you might know, sofrenza in this sense means equally suffering and patience. So, though it's true that yesterday I rocked that Danyarasana, today I popped my previously tweaked rotator cuff while reaching for my specs. Oh, what the fuck? What's one more silly old gal injury? I'm still the one who visits the cemetery. Thank you. Thank you, Maura. That was great. Um, we have um, 20 readers here tonight. 20. So we've asked everybody to read with just one poem, and we, uh, we're thinking we can, we can do it. We can do it. So, um, but if things start to slow down, I think I am going to probably push you a little bit if I notice a sag. Cause we, we, what? No, I was just imagining we were on our 10th reader and it was 8 o'clock. And then the library was closing. I was, I was thinking worst case scenario. Library's closing and we, yeah, that's all. That's all. No, we don't want you to rush at all. We want you to have a wonderful time listening to each other. So I'll call your name and uh, seven, of the, seven of the readers tonight are going to be, their poems are going to be included in our upcoming issue, the poetry contest issue which will be published in July. So that's thrilling that we'll get to hear the poems read by the author. That's always a real thrill for us before it's published. So our first reader tonight is Shirley Brewer. All right, I'm going to break the rules already because since I'm following Moira Egan, I have to tell one hot flash story. Uh, <laughs> 20 years ago, I was a speech therapist in a middle school in Anne Arundel County. There were a lot of guys on the faculty, and I found out I needed a hysterectomy. So I didn't really want to tell everybody what I had to have, so I just said I was having the big H. And the day before I was to leave for my surgery, one of the teachers came up to me with a card that everybody had signed, 
And she said, we just all want to wish you good luck with your hemorrhoids. <laughs> so from then on, I, I knew it was best to be authentic. Uh, this poem will be in the uh, July issue, which I hope you'll all order. It's called Song of Limburger. Stinky cheese curdled my childhood. On Thursdays, rehearsal nights, my dad prepared snacks in our kitchen for his pals at the Liederkranz Choral Society. My siblings and I retreated to the attic, trailed by the appalling scent of Limburger. It pummeled our noses, lingered for hours like a rancid horror flick. How could sweet music radiate from vocal cords fouled by cheese? Years later, at my dad's funeral, his Liederkranz buddies in dark blue suits stood three deep in front of the altar, singing their farewells, notes inscribed in the lining of their hearts. Harmony filled the air. I thought I smelled vanilla, bakery bread, dad's aftershave, Limburger. Music, this fierce fragrance, a melody strong in the absence of light. Thank you. Our next reader is Steve Matanley. No, I, I don't have any hot flash stories, at least none of my own. <clears throat> but, um, but I do have insomnia, and uh, as a result, <clears throat> uh, a while back I ended up writing um, or improvising poems every night um, for a few months, and uh, they ended up um, published by Passenger Books as Nightbook. I'm going to read a poem from that. I love the mysteries of the night, the mystery of sleeping houses, their dreams emblazoned beneath old wallpaper. I love the mystery of shadows scattered on the ground as if the trees had been undressed by the moon, and the blossoming cherry tree like a bride sipping wine moments before the wedding. I love the mystery of things I can't see, the torque of roots writhing and thrusting in the dark ground and the harp strings of starlight, the wind like the thoughts of someone unable to sleep, the mystery of the highway droning, the silvery sound of driving. I love the mystery of my heart like a red horse. I love the mystery of night's vanishings, the moon sinking under the weight of its own light, the last star left in the sky like a kiss that wants only to last forever. Darkness awaiting the soft, flirtatious light of dawn. Thanks. Thank you, Steve. Mariana Bushing. I have studied with um, Mary in the Odyssey program for many years, and uh, actually this was an assignment, a protest poem, and somehow made it into the passenger. So I'm going to read that. It has nothing to do with hot flashes at all. 
It's called We Are Eating Us Up. Every fish is the shape of a mouth. Every bird has succulent thighs. Sweet, oily flesh lies on beds of dill, and deep gouts of rock blood yield to the drill. Or smoke black in lakes. Your lungs are beaded with dark specks. You can see the air like pale powdered cocoa. Cities grown upward through it. The seas grow quietly vacant. Sidewalks crush the corn. Which generation will be the last one born? We are eating us up. Thank you. Thank you, Mariana. Uh, Jim Smith. has been my teacher for years, so I feel like I'm at a fourth grade uh, piano recital or something. <laughs> and as always, thank you, Mary and Kendra. Um, I wanted to say that uh, I got out of prison this afternoon. I, I went into prison this morning. I got out this afternoon. I've been doing uh, work with veterans in uh, Maryland State Prisons. And um, they usually don't talk about what they're in there for, though I, you know, I'm dying to know what. Um, <laughs> Once in a while, they uh, talk about it, and I, I had a conversation with this fellow up at the Roxbury Correctional Institution. But here's how it goes. Life in prison. Is this a great country or what? Look at this terrific meal, and all I had to do was kill someone, said the longtime resident of the Roxbury Correctional Institution as he dug into his lunch. Turk ham, soggy beans, white bread, same as the meal last night. What happened was, I found my wife in bed with some young stud, and I proceeded to shoot him dead. I accept the consequences, been here more than 32 years. Back in the day, he was a soldier, did his duty for this great country, killed anything that moved, back when that sort of thing was condoned. Now he walks with a limp, keeps the diabetes under control. Hard to believe, but my wife said she wouldn't divorce me. In fact, she still writes every month. She tells me that she loves me. And the writer of those letters sits alone at her kitchen table, eating her same old lunch, and passively serves her sentence, life in prison, no chance of parole. Wait. Our next reader is Ann Kolakowski. Are you here? I don't remember seeing you. There she is. <laughs> oh! um, we'll come back to her. Our next reader is Elisa Vieta Ritchie, who also has a new book coming out that is on the back table. It's just released this week, right, Elisa Vieta? I start, uh, didn't bother much with hot flashes. I never talked about it. But uh, I started karate when I was 63 or so. 
And then uh, we left Toronto, where I'd started. Uh, finally found another karate teacher. Uh, in the meantime, I was doing some Tai Chi, which seemed rather tame compared. <clears throat> but our sensei, our instructor, has come out with the most wonderful phrases that immediately hit my brain. And there was a time he had a tiger in the room. So the whole book is called Tiger Upstairs on Connecticut Avenue. The poem that it was in The Last Passenger is on a snake. But this is this is bigger animal. His uh, tiger upstairs on Connecticut Avenue <clears throat> for Taj at Tai Chi. He is crouching here. Pat him. We swirl our intricate patterns over invisible white tufted ears. Any feline leaps at fluttering hands for his diversion or ours. <clears throat> Aware fingers aren't genuine butterflies. My mind flutters back to orange and brown butterflies clustered on mud by the jungle river in Taman Nagara. Nights a Malay tiger circled our hut, might have leapt through windows not screened, shutters imperfectly hinged. One swipe of his paw could rip the mosquito net nutting over our bunks. Every morning we found tiger prints. Our palms stroke air, aware this tiger could snatch our fingers five at one bite. Taj switches venues. <clears throat> Imagine we're now in a cell, fire in the pit. A pot of water is boiling. Vapor? Where's the tiger, I ask? Forget the tiger, he says. You can't just dismiss a tiger. The tiger is here in the steam, grooms orange and black and white fur, cleans his whiskers, claws, teeth. He tips the pot. The water cools. He, his tongue furls to a funnel, laps. Belly up, he rolls in the puddle. Tigers do not mind being wet. One paddled behind our raft as we poled that brown river. Hard to focus on ritual patterns, a tiger patrolling the premises. I recall that envoy from Okinawa, nabbed as a spy in China, thrown in a cell with a tiger, unfed a week. Guards peered through the bars, stunned, to observe their captive perform Tai Chi, while the tiger watched, soon fell asleep. The prisoner shared his rations of rice and tea with the beast, practiced his martial dances. At week's end, they released him. The tiger? Taj's tiger trails me down the stairs to the avenue, the whole way home, Leaves prints on my ninja carpet, orange and black hairs on my bed. And as far as my age, you have to buy the book to find out.
You know, we published um, you in 1990 when you were 40 ish. 30 ish. Yeah. But I remember I, you know, I hadn't been editing very long and you were on our cover in your snowsuit. Were you in Antarctica? Oh, okay. I was close. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I remember with you, I just thought, I'm going to meet all these interesting people. You know, it was it was really um, really wild. That was back in our black and white issue days before we went for color. And it's great to have you here tonight. Um, our next reader is Rosemary Taylor. goblin with a large and knobbly nose who said the wind does puzzle me does any other goblin see where the wind goes and would he please tell me from my little home in the hollow bowl of the old oak tree I've tried and tried to follow the wind as it runs with a whistle, a boisterous laugh and a whistle, a roistering rush and a whistle, but it will not wait for me. Perhaps some night deep in winter, when I'm snug in my forest house and the snowflakes swoop like crazy owls through tangled roots, and rabbit holes and the tiny pines where cowls and copes of snow and beads of ice. I will hear a voice in my chimney crying all faint and thin, O oh, lonely goblin with knobbly nose, would you learn at last where the old wind goes? I am cold, so cold, and I have no clothes. And I say, poor wind, come in. And the wind shall sit by my fireside and toast his tired toes. And he will tell me rollicking tales of tropical ports and ocean gales and islands where only the wide wind sails. And I shall never be lonely again, for he'll tell me to follow my knobbly nose, my very own nose, wherever it goes, come calm or storm, come rain, come snows, and I'll always know 
where the wise wind goes. But now, goodbye, for my nose and I are away with the wind to the wonderful, wonderful world where the wind blows. Thank you, Rosemary. Ooh. I still have goosebumps. Our next reader is Carol Peck. Talk about a hard act to follow. I never had a hot flash, but I'm only 79, so maybe it lies ahead. Microphone. <laughs> mm -hmm. Microphone, thank you. Is this okay? All right. Now, Voyager. I took the title of my poem from the movie starring Betty Davis and Paul Henreid. And the last line in that movie, spoken by Betty Davis as Charlotte Vale, we have the stars. In late summer 1977, Voyager 2 was launched to travel to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and then to leave the solar system to become a wanderer in space. Its nose cone holds a time capsule, which includes a gold and copper phonograph record of some of Earth's greatest music. The first band is the Allegro movement of J.S. Bach's Brandenburg Concerto No. 2. This record, which will last at least one million years, bears the English message to the makers of music, all worlds, all time. Blazing through the darkness, set to probe the singing planets in deep space, you hold within your loaded capsule time out of mind, exuberance bound up in spiral gold. Your vector thrusts you toward infinity, safely past the blackest holes in space. Your victory, survive, endure, and find receivers for this light from the human race. Built to last at least one million years, you push beyond the music of the spheres. But if you should explode, a brilliant shower setting those magnetic pulses free, that golden song of joy will feather out spiral past each brimming galaxy, float serene among the dusty stars, and then soar high on pure electric wings to bend around the wrinkled edge of time, back to the mind from which all music springs, charging all the universe unbound with ringing holy silence, holy sound. I just I love these voices. They're just so beautiful just to hear them all singing in this room. Thank you for that. That was beautiful. Our next reader is Matthew Petty. Poetry is dangerous. Um, I wanted to, uh, you know, thank uh, Mary and Kendra 
for this beautiful room and for you know for for giving a uh allowing a place for for uh writers over 35 to publish their work <laughs> um i'm going to read a sestina and um as you know it's uh, the a sestina is a, a six stanza six line six stanza poem with a three line envoy at the end and you have to repeat this, the 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 word that ends each line in a very specific pattern and so i just wanted to orient you by by giving you the words that i'm going to be repeating um the words are out silent mountain not fingers and twist it's called sestina when you finally figure it out keep your dark wisdom silent so she won't guess which mountain it's hidden behind don't untie the knot but worry it with your fingers come to know its tight twist she won't realize her tells the hair twist the brief shifting glances the running out when her cell phone rings fingers itching to answer are silent later as she fixes the knot in your tie church becomes a mountain of hypocrisy driving down the mountain the road home's familiar twist feels strange it does not seem to lead you in or out behind the wheel you're silent as she twists the ring on her finger thinking has your throat in its fingers you want to vomit this mountain of knowing and become as dumb as her silence but every marriage has its twist a young woman finds you out she stings and her spidery arms knot your grief into her web green eyes knot with yours as she touches with light fingers the wick and winks the candle out sex she says is your glad mountain you slide dip twist until sated and both your smiles are silent as cheshire cats are silent you don't want to unspool this knot you inhabit a lie carelessly twisted by ever deceiving fingers no one's prepared you for this mountain's grave arrangement with no simple way out and once silence has secured its fingers in the knot of your longing this mountain of twisted connection will never see its way out thanks thank you matthew Matthew was um, concerned about reading a Sestina out loud, and I thought it worked beautifully, and you should give him all your support to encourage him to uh, read more Sestina. We are, I think, is this right, Mary? We're publishing two Sestinas in this new upcoming issue. It's probably a first for maybe any literary journal, unless they dedicate themselves to Sestinas, but two, so... And they're both going to be read tonight, yeah. So it's always a first. Our next reader is um, Passenger Books book designer, and as I said earlier, is a wonderful poet herself, Panta Tofanchi. Thanks, Kendra. So I have this book... Um, ready to be published, but I'm hoping any of you, if you know anybody forging documents, because I want to be 50 and published by them. <laughs> and, 
and I have to wait like quite a bit. But I'm, I mean, I'm willing to wait, but the subject that I'm working on is uh, war, and uh, I am short, like I have, I have to get it published. So, um, so I have this uh, manuscript about war. I, have grow, I grew up in war. Um, that's Iran-Iraq war. And um, I have about like 70 poems um, about my childhood. This is one of them. Do bombs visit all the floors? We lived on the second floor, eye level with the top of the Akakia trees. Sometimes we would go to the basement, close to the roots. When we would hear the red siren, somehow it felt safer there, at least for a while. My dad believed it made no difference in our apartment. The life of many flowering Akakias have grown inside me, like a fear that grow inside one's bone. One of my neighbors in one of our bomb-expecting gatherings in the basement mentioned that she always feared being buried alive if we were hit. And I was a mockingbird, mimicking only everybody else's fear. Being buried alive started my I-want-to-die-my-own-room campaign. My friend and a school hated it, too. They lived in a very tall high-rise, too far from any tree. Traveling all the way to the basement, often barefoot, and in the middle of the night, in candlelight, with no elevator due to the power outage, was no fun for a little girl. Do the trees have memory? Do they remember? Thank you. Well, our next poet, thank you, Panta. Our next poet is... Um, also seen around town as Emily Dickinson. Yes? Mimi, Mimi Zanino. I th this is one of the best poetry readings I've ever attended, and I have been attending poetry readings in Maryland since 1989. So I've been around. In honor of our illustrious visiting Italian, Moira Egan, <laughs> I would like to channel my personal muse, Maria Santa Alcarese Barranco, who was the first matrilineally to emigrate from Sicily to the United States. Great-grandmother, Nonna, I stared by your deathbed in an old Guilford home built stone upon stone by the hands of a mason, yours, like the fragile bones of a morning dove's wing, rested in mine, twelve years old, as mother sat near, cradling her eighth infant, Domenico, named after your husband, 
a mustachioed Sicilian barber. You passed on the story fresh with each telling of how the men carried a plaster saint on their shoulders through the streets of Chefalu, how his eyes reached out to yours with such knowing that he couldn't wait for the procession to be over, to rush home and quiz his mama about the girl who had watched from the wrought iron balcony. At 19, you wore a feather-swept hat that bade the old country farewell from a ship crossing the Atlantic, your hope chest filled with hand-sewn lace linens, your new husband by your side. I did not understand the irony then, my tiny brother bearing the name of the man who brought you to Baltimore in 1909, the same angel who carried this newborn in would circle back out of this realm with you in its sure grasp, traveling toward yet a new unknown. I only knew what I saw, the transition from flesh to ash. Your cheeks no longer circled with rose petal rouge. Your lips no longer bowed in holly berry lipstick. Instead, a withered smile was all and a shrunken frame, frail as a fossil. Decades after your funeral, I discovered children, childhood poems I'd written for you. Rhymes inspired by backyard sightings of fleeting cardinals and wide-eyed rabbits, still there in a box on the top shelf of the playroom closet in the same sanctuary where I spent weekends visiting you, holding conversations with doll babies, calling them by American names, Sean, Pamela, Shannon, Nana, I couldn't have known what to say when I looked at you, frozen as a plaster icon in the casket. I couldn't have known that the praise you gave in English, broken and sweet as brittle candy, would be a prized heirloom resonating through my lifetime. Now, with a vision that spans homelands, this legacy is all that is left. The gift of sight and insight. I am wearing your eyes. I never take them off. Thank you. intense. <laughs> oh, um, Our next reader uh, is someone who just, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but she just turned 50 and she, you know, so she got to be here, which we thought was kind of exciting. You know, so we're the, we, by the way, are the journal that people dread to be published in. <laughs> you know, we're the, uh, we're that journal. But, um, but anyway, we're very happy when we get our passenger babies, the new, the new 50s. So, um, and where is our passenger baby? You really are. Uh, let's welcome uh, Jenny Keith. Thank you so much, Kendra, Mary, and Moira. Very proud to be here. Um, this is a poem about 
um, growing up and alluding to a, a, a discussion earlier in the hallway, um, when a uh, when a, a woman poet might be referred to as a woman poet or, uh, heaven forbid, a poetess really happened. <laughs> this is called, Oh My God, She is Serious. Sharp elbow, heads up from the ice, tea, and lawn. The glass door swings open, invites everyone, a ring dance, a blessing, a twirl of good cheer. See now, coming forward from kitchen and parlor. It's clever, transcending its genre, its gender. You'll love it and honor it, cherish forever this one, like the ones you remember, but smaller. Cuter and sweeter, much nicer, petiter, a bite size of meat that will never taste vulgar, with modesty, nursery, nunnery time, the Barbie barbarians trying to rhyme. Now the shadow she's, now into the shadow she's turning her head. She is serious. She will be one to regard, hanging sheet after sheet on a line in the yard laundered clean of the writing, once clear on the wall, something small as a doll shoe, once artfully lost in a tangled-up carpet of haves and have-nots, the secret you won't torture out with a rack. This serious thing. When the world turns its back, it is small as a virus, as quiet as time, concealed like a pistol, insensible purses, acquiring a pulse of their own, are these verses divorced and unmannered, a chaos of dreaming, born sudden and knowing, with blood and with screaming. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. It's nice to have you. Uh, our next reader is Sylvia Fishback-Braden. I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. Sylvia Fishback-Braden. Um, hi, everybody. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, let's see. So I, I was going to tell you what a sestina was, but now I don't have to do that. <clears throat> um, thanks to Matthew. <laughs> the, uh, the name of my poem is Imprecation, which is a... It's a it's, I wrote this ahead of time. I'm sorry if it's stupid, but... Imprecation, which is a four-syllable word for curse. Death, you thief, you villain, you tore me from the ones who cared for me, leaving me alone with my proximal mate and distant daughter, and my boxes of photos, and my grandmother's trunk from India. May you choke and drown eternally 
in the rivers of India. I'll toast you on a spit, you villain, who shredded child photos of my sister and me. You'll never lay your wormy hands on the curved body of my daughter. I'll gut you with a dull knife if you try to touch my mate. I'll come after you with an army of barbarians and my mate skilled in the military arts of the hills of India. I'll pickle you in lime. Before I let you probe my daughter's tender heart, grab her thin fingers, cruel villain, look instead on me. I'll slash your eyes with the serrated knives of my photos. Beast, unmoved by family photos, you'll never have a mate who loves unlucky you like mine loves me. I'll drive you to the ends of India, my mother's first harbor, and grill you, villain, like a stinking mango. You'll never know the sweet scent of my daughter. God up there, reclining on your radiant throne, will you protect my daughter? I have no reason to believe so. I'd rather worship photos If you made all, you made the villain who shadows my mate. My mother, trained by missionary parents in India, said bedtime prayers. Not me. Death, get the hell away from me. You can't have my daughter. By all the gods in India, the goods inside my trunk, the broad back of my mate. I swear I'll see you drip in melted threads, you cheesecloth villain. Villain, are you part of me? How can I preserve my aging mate, rescue my endangered daughter? Wet photos from the British Raj float home in a trunk to India. Thank you. That's a passenger poem, isn't it? Thank you, Sylvia. It was great to hear you read that. That's in the next issue of Passenger. Our next reader is Art Cohen. Uh, This was written um, after a year and a half of technical writing. I decided uh, it was time for a poem. (laughs) The myth. One. His sole task is to roll the rock up to the top of the high hill. This is first. All else must wait. This focus repeated eternally. A punishment worthy of hell. Two. Yet Sisyphus smiles, content about the several lives he has lived, sporting with death, fooling him well, returning from Hades to earthly pleasures, 
a unique reprieve from the devil's clutch. 3. What others lament as awful frustration propels him upward behind his boulder, our favorite workaholic, forever toiling on, who on the way back down stays sane by doing the absurd work of chiseling self from chaos. Thank you, Art. Art hand delivers his poems to us, slips them under our door. You have that special designation in our heart. Our next reader is Lynette Nefertiti. Good evening. How's everybody? Thank you, Mary and Kendra, for getting me out the house. I'm such a homebody. Thank you for calling me. And thank you again and again and again and forever, forever, Steve, for teaching me how to read, like really read. Thank you again. This is for my friend Jenny. My mother gave me music. Initially, the drum, the bridge between two worlds, her womb and the one waiting to receive me with extended hands. She would sing me lullabies learned from her mother who had learned them from her mother who had learned them from church. Play me 45s on the box with little colored discs that made the platters and the drifters fit around the spinning sound of doo-wops and albums on the new hi-fi that she would buy to teach me jazz. By sight and sound, the names and notes of Ramsey's waiting, Nancy's guessing, Cannibal's mercy, Ray's got a woman, and the only white woman in the stacks made me smile inside whenever she sang about people. On occasion, she would take me uptown where a little blind boy named Stevie played Fingertips, Mary Wells, Miracles, Martha and the Vandellas, Marvelettes, Marvin Gaye, Supremes, Temptations, and the Four Tops gave us a royal theater show, while James Brown called on Maceo and the Fabulous Flames crooned on Baby Please Don't Go. She would pretty me up with ribbons and bows and take me to the dinner shows, first at a club called Venus where I first saw a man on silver crutches and wondered if he was a prince or a duke because they called him Sir Walter Jackson and nobody ate when he sang. Later downtown at the Playboy Club, we would laugh at all the bunny butts switching around as Lionel Hampton made these sounds I never heard before on the xylophone chimes not like they taught us in school. And I learned from Billy Eckstein how different music could feel when you listened with your eyes closed. Down the road, she would turn me on to radio stations playing serious jazz, late night TV music shows, news of who was coming to town, and the latest addition to her CD collection 
all the while listening for what was good about folk like Seal, Yanni, Bonnie Raitt, and George Michael's latest, blowing me away every time with her perfect sense of perception. But that was all to come. You see, my mother gave me music. Initially the drum, her heart, to which I cling now, listening for her breathing me a wind song. Sweetie, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. As the doctor stands with extended hands, waiting to weigh me in at birth. Thank you, Lynette. Is Pat Baldada here? Oh, there you are. Oh, let's welcome Pat Baldada. <laughs> Hi, Shirley. Hi, Lisa. Hi, everybody. Oh, it's, it's nice to actually know people here. This is so cool. I live in Cecil County, so it's really exciting to have an audience for a poetry reading. <clears throat> Sorry. I know, that was bad. Okay. <laughs> Her general theory of relativity. He's watching Star Trek again. That episode where Einstein, Newton, and Hawking play poker with data. He, he's eating a tomato, lets its sweet flesh compress between his teeth juice squirt down his stubble. But zoom in a couple orders of magnitude, and there is no tomato, no he, just space and atoms. You have to dive deep into the nucleus to find any charm at all. It's all related, generally speaking, space and tomatoes in 25 years, only the weak force of gravity keeping them together. If time travel were possible, would she take it all back to the evening he proposed? There was no tomato then, no data. On days, she thinks time runs thixotropic, like ketchup in the bottle she needs to shake up. She knows it's more. The way shifting a single electron from an atom of friable metal to an atom of poisonous gas creates the sodium chloride without which they would die. Like salt, they can't exist alone. To split them up would take more energy than the universe can spare. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Baltimore's always had good audiences for poetry, but I, I do attribute a lot of that to Clorinda and the work that she's always done. Yeah. There is a city, City Lit. City Lit has honored her with um, the annual, I'm not going to say this correctly, um, oh, um, book award, chapbook award is in her name for all the amazing work she's done in Baltimore. So thank you. Ellen Hartley is our next reader. Thank you. 
Thank you all. I am a little bit awed to be in such august company. This is called Dilemma. Does my life have direction? What is direction? Do I have a purpose? Is purpose direction? Is direction linear? Is linear two-dimensional, therefore without depth? Can direction be linear and yet deep? Am I superficial? (laughs) Why does this question bother me? Why am I always asking questions? I feel stuck, mired, rooted. But wait, doesn't rooted imply stability and permanence? If a rolling stone gathers no moss, is it therefore stable and permanent? Is that a good thing? Who wants to be mired in moss? If the stone keeps rolling, it won't be mired in moss. But on the other hand, it won't be stable and permanent. I am baffled. If I give the wrong interpretation, mightn't I be a judged psychotic and get mired in a straitjacket? Maybe I'd better stop asking so many questions. Thank you, Ellen. Ellen is uh, known for her um, verse, and she writes a lot of limericks. And I've read, you've written several for me. And we thought, we thought about offering a limerick workshop, <laughs> which we thought would be kind of a hoot. What do you think? Think? Maybe we should send around a sign-up sheet if you want to join the limerick, con- uh, limerick workshop because Ellen would be the one to lead us into the future of limericks. Our next reader is Ann Kolakowski. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I, too, am a passenger baby, having recently celebrated a milestone birthday. But I always thought of it as being a passenger virgin offered up on the altar of poetry to be deflowered. So um, anyway, I'm excited to be here. And this is really wonderful. Um, you know, when you, when you start writing poetry and you go to workshops, you hear the rules. And among the rules that I kept hearing was, you know, don't write about dogs, don't write about grandmothers. And we've heard some really wonderful grandmother poems tonight. And um, I've had the last two published uh, poems accepted for publications, in my case, have been about dogs, one of which I'm about to read. And the book that I have coming out next spring is basically my grandmother's childhood story. So I think your material is your material. And I'm just really... um, really odd to be among such a great group. So thank you. Um, This is inspired by and dedicated to the memory of my little West Highland Terrier, whose name was Austin. And I have the wonderful Moira Egan to uh, thank for helping me uh, fine tune it. And I'm really pleased to be able to read it here tonight in front of her. Um, It's called Guru. You greet me at the door each night with jumps and pirouettes, Such happiness ignores the leash. Your tail, in playful Morse code, thumps the gospel of agape love. I'm sure that's what you mean. Had I a tail to shake as well, I would in kind return your praise. Instead, each dawn, I bow to you and take the yoga pose that bears your name. First, raise my rump, Extend my knees and elbows straight. Then clear my mind of every earthly woe. 
this rush of blood a path to heaven's gate? Inhale. Perspective shifts. It's true, you know, that dog reversed invokes a higher form. So bless me, humble master. Keep me warm. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Passenger virgin. Seems oxymoronic to me, but (laughs) I like it. I like it. We could sketch it. Our next reader is Johan. My parents uh, were fun-loving, generous people, very generous people, uh, and and they inspired this poem. Toll-free, and suddenly the urge came over me to speak into the disconnected telephone to people long gone, dead, friends whom I still owed words, and to myself who I still owed voice. I dialed 1-800-NOW-HERE, then toggled to 1-800-NOW-GONE. It was easy and everyone was in. No minutes were taken. Ghost talk is far too personal. I offered red roses and dark chocolates, but they said, no, no, save your money. Better yet, get yourself something nice instead. That's just the way they are. And I've uh, added a a footnote to this, taken the liberty to add a footnote of 1-800-JOHAN, 1-800-THE-POET. So thank you. Thank you, Joe. Our next reader is Deb Arnold. Deb, are you here? Yeah. Give a warm welcome. Thank you, Kendra and Mary, for having me here. Uh, Okay. And this poem was written as I was traveling through New Mexico, where I think the landscape was having a bigger hot flash than I was. (laughs) Continental Divide. I had traveled 2,000 miles to put a little distance between myself and grief, to find the continental divide, a contour of arrows winding like snakeskin across the map anchored to the passenger seat with a tire iron and a plastic change purse. I expected to see a billboard announce the rift that washed rivers east or west, streaming questions in neon orange and bright blue flashes proclaiming Christ is the answer. Baptized a Methodist, I'd never heard Jesus say anything. A tornado couldn't grind into splinters. A wildfire burned to ash. An ocean wave drowned. Perhaps snakes had the answers. In primal secrets rendered holy, left inside the hollow skin they shed. I stopped between the slant of gravel and grass, 
waiting to feel the earth give, waiting to stretch my body into the skin of that snake and listen for the cold, lean truth. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Deborah um, is also a graphic artist and is did design the cover for a book that we published a few years ago called Keeping Time, which was a collection of journal entries uh, from 1865 till the present. Yeah. It, it included Deborah's visual journal, which is gorgeous. Right, just beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Um, our next reader is our old friend, Kathy Mangan. I'm way beyond the virgin stage, I think. <laughs> and as a professor of uh, American literature for 36 uh, years, I've been uh, feeling the eyes very much of our honored uh, name E of the, the room. It's one of those portraits that seems to be staring at you from where, wherever you're, you're sitting. So I'll hope to do right. And uh, sort of in that line, I'm, I'm reading an elegy uh, which was written for a student. It's called Fugue for a Student. And I had uh, long been trying to find a way to write about this young woman who had died, as the poem will say, um, just two weeks before she graduated um, from the college where I teach a number of years ago. It was a car accident, but it seemed to those of us who knew and cared about her that it really wasn't an accident. It was a suicide and um, I was in an artist colony um, a number of years ago and talking about um, the Irish, whom I love, and um, saying that um, for a lot of Irish, they, they won't say yes or no. They might say, I will or I won't. And uh, one of the benefits of an artist colony, as some of you know, is that you meet artists in every genre. And a Korean composer who was sitting at the table with me said, oh, uh, there's a, a word in Korean that um, if you're Korean and you hear it, um, you hear it as yes. But if you're Korean and you hear it, you really know it means no. And that fascinated me. It really was the key and the way into writing about uh, this uh, student and her death. And it's written in tersets, and the last line of each of the three lines stands as uh, uh, rhymes with no, because that seemed to be... Um, really the voice of the student coming through the poem. Last evening at dinner, the Korean composer taught me the word in his language that means yes, but implies to the listener no. And this morning, my thumb, my mind, thumbs its syllables like the jade touchstone my parents once sent me from San Francisco, Kuseyo until its lilt of uncertainty creates a consoling music. That's so, no, perhaps no. Letting you slip between its notes and into my thoughts, the way you skittered into my office so flustered that April day, flushed and thumping against one, one thigh, the black case of your piccolo, and unleashed an arpeggio of fears, failed exams, missing credits, a high-pitched string, a fanciful woe I couldn't silence or soothe. You hovered, weeks shy of commencement, 
How could any of us know? You paused in the stalled measure of every tongue's stark question, no or yes, goodbye or hello. That two nights later, you would drive directionless for hours until you turned down an exit ramp, clearly marked no entrance, and steered among the bleat of horns until you picked out the darkness you'd been seeking in a pair of oncoming low beams. You pressed hard the accelerator, you pressed hard the accelerator pad like a key to the deeper octaves, having resolved to go. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Beautiful. So we're at our last reader, unless there's someone that we forgot. Is anyone else out here? Christine. Oh, come on up. Christine. Christine Higgins. Chapbook Threshold, but it first appeared in Passenger, so I wanted to be um, part of the celebration, so thank you. It's called The Fortune. One day you will rise up from the kitchen chair and declare yourself. Your hands will fly around your head like wild birds. Your mother's first thought will be to protect herself. Nothing you say will undo the folding of her arms against you. You will leave this house with your fortune. Don't bother coming back. It won't be a moment of triumph like first sex, where you admire your body performing in a new way, the sound of one heart beating, then two distinct. The small muscles in your arms will ache from the fists you made and used against yourself. Think of it as afterbirth. Consider yourself the fool in the tarot deck, finally standing at the precipice, having a choice. I don't mean to frighten you. It won't be a bad life. It will be a life made possible. Thank you. Thank you for that poem. And our last reader tonight is Clorinda Harris. No? Do you know one? Sure, but it's so irreverent and it's so very old, and I know it only because it's so very short. And it involves a pun. If I could shimmy like my sister Sal, oh me, oh my, wouldn't that be swell? I'd shake whatever you had an eye for, and you'd gimme, gimme what I cry for. Then I'd roast your head on the white hot moon, and I'd eat your brains with a silver spoon. Well, 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 well. <laughs> That's what happens. That's what happens. Yeah. Yeah, we can't. We can't. 
This was an absolutely wonderful reading. I really want to thank all of you, and I know Mary does too. And uh, you're just wonderful readers, too, besides the fact that you're amazing writers. Just, like, amazing readers. Just, uh, just fantastic. Um, I want to thank Kathleen and Kim and make just a couple of announcements because we did end right about 8 o'clock, didn't we? we oh. Oh. Any Q's and A's, Elizabeth? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Well, um, we will be, this is being podcast, that's sort of an interesting by way of possibly doing this Q&A. Um, there's a, the, the podcast will be posted on the Pratt website, so you can go there and hear the whole program. So that would, that, that. Hmm? And it stays there, I think, forever. As far as I know. We are, um, I will say that we're always looking for suggestions because we so want to have some kind of impact and really make a difference in people's lives and make a difference in people's attitudes about their lives and about getting older and what all those things mean to us. And so if you ever have ideas about where we could go or what we could do, please email us and go, you know, go to the website and just get our email and send us, send us something. Okay, I think we'll let our 93-year-old winner of this year's Passager Poetry Contest have the last word. Um, we started with Baby Moira, who just turned 50, and um, this is Joyce Lemers, who lives in California, and um, I'll just read you her cover letter just a little, just so you can hear her voice. Um, uh, my bio does not change much these days. I still have my RV, but have not driven it cross-country again. Not yet. She did that, by the way, when she was 89 with her cat. Mm-hmm. Yep. What? <laughs> my current achievements include being named literary treasurer of Ventura County, California. Um, and I just learned today that I'm one of the winners of the Ventura County Writers' Annual Poetry Contest. I'm still writing, do occasional readings, and sleep a lot, all of which I enjoy. It's a quiet life here with my old cat, Fang Chewy, <laughs> who really enjoys the sleeping part. Um, and there's a wonderful, going to be a wonderful interview with her in the magazine. She's just brilliantly alive. Um, but here's, here's one of the poems, just a little preview. Gumming up the future. When you get very old, you become aware of impending doom. 
Which moment will be your last? Each time you get a cold or a new ache or have some minor accident, you wonder, is this it? And you start worrying about all the things undone. It's a time for concern about poorly chosen underwear or (laughs) whether your feet are clean enough for the toe tag. (laughs) And what the coroner will think of that last meal you ate. (laughs) You worry about letters you never wrote and others you never burned. You think of all the experiences that will die with you, especially those nobody knows about. What a novel you could write. Why haven't you been making notes? If you survive this crisis, you will stop wasting time and get started. Tomorrow, for sure. <laughs> so. so we we're allowed to stay here till eight thirty, right? Okay. Um, t- uh, t- 8.10, although this watch is funky. Okay. But well, it seemed like it would be a nice time for you to talk to each other because you've just heard, you heard each other read, and I heard people muttering comments when people were reading, and maybe you want to tell each other. So. I'm just going to, um, before everybody disperses, if you don't mind, I wanted to thank Mary and Kendra and all of you um, for the gift of your words and wisdom and the beautiful language to the Pratt. This is a real gift to us, having you all here. And as we mentioned, there's books for sale, but another thing we have in the back are evaluation forms. Anything that you have to say about tonight's program or, or you know, would help us in getting more programs like this through the Pratt. And Whenever, when we're open, please feel free to come back and browse our poetry collection. And it's very wide, including passenger books. So thank you again very much. <laughs> Thanking you.